For the sixth episode of Brain Bios Podcast, we interviewed Dr. Jane Raymond from the School of Psychology at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Dr. Raymond's impressive academic record includes many notable laboratory accomplishments, such as having conducted the seminal work on the widely studied attentional blink phenomenon, as well as applied work outside the laboratory, such as consulting with the central banks on counterfeit detection, which she discusses in this podcast. We interviewed Dr. Raymond in St. Pete Beach, Florida, while we were attending the 2019 Vision Sciences Society meeting. Prior to our conversation, Dr. Raymond provided a list of topics she thought would be interesting to cover in the podcast, which you will hear guided our conversation. I chose to interview Dr. Raymond for her thoughtful and creative approach to science, advising, and life in general. She is known for being a supportive figure in the field, a reputation that will be reinforced as you listen to her thoughts on writing poetry and being true to one's career. Speaking to Dr. Raymond made us feel more grounded in our approach to academia, and we hope it does the same for you. Okay, we're extremely lucky to have Jane Raymond here today. Um, and per usual, we were going to have her start by telling, her, telling us a little bit of her story, how she got interested in psychology and became the famous person she is today. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, kind of you to say. Um, you know, when I was an undergraduate, I really wanted to become an occupational therapist. And I couldn't because I couldn't do that in my province. I would have had to move to Alberta, and I didn't want to do that. So I did a regular science degree because it was the 70s and science was cool. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll do chemistry. Because I like chemistry, and I did, I did well in chemistry in high school, so I was going to do chemistry. So I took... You know, first year you take a broad section of courses, and I thought, I'll take psychology. And my older brother, who was doing engineering, gave me a really hard time about it because he said, ah, psychology is what they called a cracker course, which means it's easy, and you know, and that, that was stupid. I was wasting my time, and I shouldn't really take such a stupid course. But I said, no, nah, I really wanted to do it, so I took psychology. And I also took biology and chemistry and math and English because well, I kind of liked English. Oh, and I took German because I really liked German and I studied German in school. So, um, you know, I took like an extra course and I thought, well, this should give me a good idea. And chemistry, the professor was really old and the building stank. So, <laughs> so much for chemistry. And then biology was really fun. I really liked biology, but psychology was just full of questions. And it was like they didn't know the answers. And I thought, that's way more interesting. And biology was all memorizing classes of animals and you know, genus and this and that. And it seemed like it was all known. And I thought, uh -huh. I, want a, I want a science that there are more questions than answers. And psychology was like that. And it was a very exciting time, of course, because neuroscience was just being born. And it was all very exciting. So. But at the same time, I really love German, <laughs> and I love biology. So I took a, a minor in biology and in German, and German literature was really cool. And then I spent a summer in Germany, and that was really fun. And, uh, you know, those days, going back, there was no Internet. There were mm -hmm. no telephone. You couldn't call anybody because it right. cost too much money. So right. people wrote letters, and I have thousands of these letters that flew across the Atlantic, and that was really fun. Um, but it was a big adventure for me, and, and that was cool. But then it came back, so I thought, I really want to keep my German going. So I, I studied German lit, um, which was really great. 
and I can't speak German at all, hardly now, which is <laughs> okay, yeah. I can read a little bit, but anyway, um, and so psychology continued to be interesting, and it was a very energetic department that, that I was in, and it was really fun, and my um, honors project was on single unit recordings in cats, oh. and I got to make my own electrodes, and we got to listen to um, neurons and cat superior colliculus, um, using hi-fi systems that have been sort of rigged to do stuff. Remember, this is transistors were around, but computers were not around. Yeah, there were right. no personal computers at that point. And so listening to neurons going pop, 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 and moving our hands in front of this cat's eyes and making the neurons go and not go was really amazing. cool. It yeah. was really amazing. And yeah, that, that was really wonderful. And at the same time, the... Um, animal welfare people were starting to get worried about how we dealt with animals in the lab and all this stuff. So we had a veterinarian in the, um, the med school who uh, worked with the surgeons who were pediatric surgeons because working with animals, little animals, is a lot like working with little babies. Mm -hmm. And so he was training, the, the veterinarian was actually training the pediatric um, surgeons sure. and helping them. And so they decided to put on a course for all the people doing animal research. So unbelievably, as an undergraduate, I got to take this course oh. on surgery. And so I learned how to do surgery on dogs and cats and oh rats. And I learned right. all this stuff. And I think that was one of my most pivotal moments is watching a heartbeat in a dog. And it was like, yeah, that was cool. Anyway, so, so um, you know, I, but at that point I was like, okay, I love science. Science is the most amazing thing. And so I was pretty clear I wanted to do that. Um, however, in the background was this other side of me, this, as I was saying to you before, it's kind of my Gemini character where I had this other artsy side to me. And I, you know, I, I, I used to write poetry a lot when I was an undergraduate because I just love poetry and I love literature and I like languages and I also like to draw so I started to develop that side of myself as well and um, so that I think was really important um and anyway I guess I never wanted to become a PhD student okay. that was never part of the plan I had no idea what I wanted to do <laughs> none at all and my professors were saying you've got to apply to graduate school you really need to do a PhD and no one in my family had done a PhD. I mean, hardly. I mean, my parents had degrees, but that was it. And, you know, and I told my mother, I thought I might consider doing a PhD. She burst into tears and said, I she just, <laughs> yes, she did. She said, I just want you to have a happy life. <laughs> <laughs> and she had never met anyone with a PhD who was even slightly normal. And she right. wanted me to be, Aww. you know, happy. Right. Very sweet. Yeah, um, yeah. And then I said, no, you know, I think I might be able to work this out. <laughs> and anyway, so it, I really had a lot of support. And people helped me to say, you really should try and do this. So, okay, so I did it. And then I, I applied. And I got this amazing scholarship from the Canadian government. And it was the first thing that they had set up. And I had to fly up to Montreal and do this interview. And that was another story. I get there. And um, it's in the middle of winter. And Montreal in the winter is mountains of snow. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm Canadian, because it didn't upset right. me. It, <laughs> right. I knew, but, it, but it turned out that all the power was off. Oh. And I had to stay with my brother, who lived there. And it was freezing cold, and I thought I was going to die. But, mm -hmm. that, but I didn't. And I did actually make it to McGill for this interview. And I get there, and you know, my last name is Raymond, which in Montreal is Raymond. Uh -huh. And it's a very, very common French name. Right. 
In fact, on all the credit cards, they use Raymond as the name because it's both English and French. Uh, you know, fake credit cards? Right, Smith. It's usually Gerald. Gerald Raymond or Gerald Raymond. Uh -huh. uh, okay. It's both ways. So, um, and I was born in Montreal. So these people looked at, they only had my you know, birth information for some reason and my name, and they started speaking to me in French. Uh -huh. Being a good Canadian, I'm thinking, okay, this interview is going to be in French. <laughs> you know, and I studied German. And I, like, I'm like this rebel Canadian who didn't learn right. that much French. And they start speaking to me in French, and I'm trying to answer. And then they finally they said to me, you're not francophone, are you? <laughs> so that was the first test. And, and then I walk into this room, and it's all men, of course, on the other side of a table. It, must have been 50, it felt like 15 men across one end of a table and me sitting in front of them. And they start asking me questions about what's the, what's the future of science. And I'm like, you know, okay, well, I thought it was neuroscience. Well, that was the right answer. And then they asked me what was my favorite book. And, you know, I, I probably said Jane Austen or something. I can't remember now. And then they said, um, do you plan to have children? Oh, no, I was 21 didn't. years Jeez. old. And they're asking me, did I plan to have children? <laughs> uh, you know, you got to remember that this was, you know, this wow. was the, and the 70s, I guess. And, um, so I said, um, well, I never heard of a pregnant woman who couldn't read. <laughs> so I'm not sure why that's relevant. <laughs> oh, I don't know where that you. came from. But anyway, so but the, anyway, the, the scholarship was uh, awarded to me, and that gave me the power to go off to the U.S. And I went to Seattle uh, University of Washington and did my first year there. But I unfortunately had fallen in love and had to do the right thing. So I came home and did my rest of my degree at Dalhousie, and where I did my undergraduate degree, and that was good. And I did my PhD in record time so I could keep up with my partner and we could do what we wanted to do, like move together, and then got my degree in three years, which was wow. a very short PhD. Yeah. Um, but it was concentrated, and it was fine. Uh, it wasn't untypical. My, my supervisor was a Brit, and you know, in Britain, they do a three-year PhD. Right. So he, it fit his expectations, and it worked fine. Right. Um, and well, and in those days, the the number of publications you were expected to get in grad school was lower. I assume. zero. Yeah. Nobody right. expected to publish right. anything. Right. It was all about skill acquisition. Mm -hmm. You were expected to know stuff. Right. You know, I had to build my own stuff. My my supervisor, um, he said, he told me actually, I don't like having women in my lab. Mm. <laughs> I uh. went, okay. <laughs> and he said, I, you know, he said something like, I, I like to have. How do you put it? I, I think anyone in my lab should be able to lift 150 pounds. So I looked at him and I said, well, how about having someone in your lab who can have 150 pounds lifted? <laughs> oh. <laughs> so anyway, that was a bit of a trial. And I had to learn a lot of electronics because in those days we didn't have computers. Right. Although I was studying computer programming all this time, um, actually. And we had big mainframes, and that was, mm -hmm. was really fun. We learned Fortran and all this stuff. It was cool. Mm -hmm. um, but then I learned transistors, and I had to build all my own electronics. And that was really fun. I loved learning the technology. It was great. Um, anyway, and that's, that's really how I got started. And from then, you know, it's a typical thing. I got a postdoc, and then I got a job, and, and then another job, and then another right. job. And, the rest is history. The rest is history. Well, okay, so one of the things that I try to convince my undergrads a lot is that they say that they don't like research, and right? I, and I have to say, like, but do you have questions you're interested in, and are you creative? And I really try to explain how creativity 
is similar to research, or at least these things are not mutually exclusive. So right. what you're, you're describing what people traditionally think of as separate things, right? I like to build my own equipment versus I like poetry. And people mm -hmm. usually think that those are not mm -hmm. overlapping skill sets. So can you explain a little bit about how you see these as overlapping? Yeah, I see them as not only overlapping, but like totally integral yeah. in the sense that um, that's what I tell my students now is they ask me, what can I do so I can be a good student? I say, write poetry. Yeah. Um, write poetry, draw pictures, play music, do something creative. And that creativity is actually the most important skill that you can for you know nurture. And the school system, the whole academic system doesn't really support mm -hmm. it. And yet, if you look at the people who are successful, they are the creative people. Yeah. And without that creativity, you're just sunk. And you know, you can develop it, and it, it helps you learn how to think outside the box. Poetry, I think, has the added advantage of forcing people to use words correctly. Mm. And, you know, if you write short poems, like force yourself to write a, a ten-line poem, it doesn't have to rhyme, it doesn't have to be grammatical, but it has to have exactly the right words. Wow, and if yeah. you pick the wrong word, this feeling of the whole poem is gone. And so a good poem, if you really have a strong sense of what you want to say, it can be emotional, it can be descriptive, it can be an idea, it can be philosophical, it can even be political. You pick the words that really support that feeling and that takes effort. And when I was an undergraduate, I would write a poem once a week and I would work on it all week long, swapping mm. out words, swapping in words, working on it and working on it and working on it until I felt it was right. And I never shared them with anybody and I still have them in a little book and I never really, I didn't try to publish them. I wasn't interested in that. I was just interested in capturing the right thing, like the essence of the, the feeling. Sometimes wow. it was just about the city, but sometimes it was other stuff. And that's really good. And it's, it's therapeutic, I think, in a funny kind of way. It's good for your mental health, but yeah. it's certainly good for vocabulary building. And, uh, and that notion of precision and that notion of, of, of accurate description. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, like for me, I also am a, a, a weekend painter and I've been mm. painting and drawing for a long time. And, um, you know, uh, uh, people have their, my paintings in their homes. So I don't exhibit or anything much, although I have had a few paintings in ex exhibitions. But it, to me, that's the same thing. It's like you have to think of the, the kernel idea uh, what is the essence of what it is you're trying to do, whether it's in science, you know, this is applicable to postdocs or graduate students, and, you know, your supervisor says, here, we want to investigate, you know, this question. And then just go away and think. Don't read, don't go sit on the beach and think about the essence of it. How would you put that in a poem? Or how would you do a sketch about that to, to, to encapsulate it? And then from that, you come up with, that's core question. Then you start reading and seeing how the literature addresses your key question. And then you start to fill it out, the question, your picture, your sketch, and your mind starts to develop colors and textures and balance and composition. And you start to say, okay, this is where my artwork is going to be. And that's your research project. It's a hugely creative process, you know, and it's personal. You know, and I always say that to my students, too. It's like your writing should not be a formula. You know, here's mm -hmm. the APA thing. Right. Here's how you write a research report. But if you, I don't hear your voice in it, you don't get an A. Right. So, you know, you have to use your, your voice, you know, your uh, examples, your spin on it, your take on it. It's really important. That's very cool.
I, I mean, I've, I have kind of always drawn and painted a little bit just recently, actually. But I've, I agree that frequently when I'm thinking about a problem, I use mental imagery, at least, to think about kind of a mm -hmm. process model of what's mm -hmm. happening in the brain. Mm -hmm. It's easy to think of kind of assembly line. How do I build these representations and then mm -hmm. what do I do with it? And, mm -hmm. and I think frequently that little thought exercise of imagining how the information kind of comes into the system and how it's transformed and built yep. and um, frequently that illustrates that that kind of works the logic out in a way that that you know reading someone else's words simply can't do it um, I love the poetry stuff because I've I I've probably struggled with that more than anything else which is to try to try to be a better writer yeah <laughs> it's, it's most of our game yeah like it's once, most of our game once you yeah. get past a postdoc or even into a postdoc it's virtually the whole thing yeah, I think expression is really, really important and how you write and how you... I mean, but the other thing about creativity, which is sort of separate, is that it teaches you how to turn the problem upside down or yeah. inside out. And so you look at it in a very different way. So, for example, um, I like to do abstract um, painting. And when you do an abstract painting, you've got to say, what is, if this is an abstract painting about, say, a tree... It still has to be a tree in some way. It has right. to, you know, evoke a sense of tree. So you have to sort of, but you, but in order to do that and do it in an original way, you've got to really turn it around and look at it from a different angle and try out different ideas. And I think in science, that's a lot of what you have to do: is you take a problem and then you look at it from a different angle, turn it upside down, and and look at it that way and try to be original. And it sometimes it fails miserably and, and you have to be you have to go with that you have to accept failure on that and that's really important process of it part of it too that part of that process is to experiment and be happy for it to fail um but it it helps so that's that's where i think creativity comes in it's not just learning the skill of language or the skill of of unique description it's that ability to um look at a problem in a different way right okay so i love you you've put this interaction between creativity and research in a much more eloquent way than I ever have. That was so beautiful. And the interesting thing is that you could take that in a lot of directions. So like Jeff was commenting on scientific writing, for example. But you know, the, the other thing that I'm thinking about when you're saying that is you're describing how to have a very successful career. Because what you're saying is don't latch on to determining the boundary condition of somebody else's effect. You're saying like grab this much larger thing that would be a much more impactful mm -hmm. research career. So I'm also kind of wondering how you work with your trainees to help them not, not have incremental projects, right? Or to go down this track. Yeah, it's so difficult. I mean, that was probably the hardest part of the job is your trainees because they're all different. They're like snowflakes. There's no yeah. two <laughs> the same, right? And right. you you know, you you work out a way of dealing with one and then it doesn't really work with the other one and you know, it, it, the job of the professor, the lab director or whatever is to find the the weaknesses in each person and build those up. Mm -hmm and exploit the strengths mm -hmm. or allow those strengths to really work for that person and the lab as a group. So that, that is really, really hard. Um, I mean, I like to have lab meetings where we have papers that are not in our area. 
So that's another thing I always tell my students. Mm. Read. 15% of your reading should be outside your discipline. Yeah. Either outside your discipline, but it's certainly outside your immediate area. So, you know, someone's doing research on color vision. Well, they should definitely be reading about object recognition, and they should be reading about um, art, maybe, or art history and color paintings. Uh, they should be reading about animals and genetics and all these things, even if it's not directly in their area, will inform them and make them better uh, individuals in the long run in terms of their career. And there's two reasons for that. One, one is you see how in different areas they ap- approach problems and you say, hey, we could, we could do that here. Mm-hmm. And so that gives you an, a new way of looking as a help, an assist in, in developing a new thing. But also, um, we assume that people will be successful and that they will then be, you know, academics on grant review boards and on promotion boards, et cetera, et cetera. And you don't get to be a prom- on the promotions board for your discipline. You're on the promotion board for everybody else's discipline. Right. And you're judging all kinds of time, all the time, people working in different disciplines. And the more widely read you are, the better it is. So I, I really think that's that's one way we try to build creativity is this idea of take take a different discipline, try to say, how would you apply that? And then sometimes we have um, away days for the lab, and people present their pr- their work in progress, and then on the last day, we have the Blue Skies Day. Ah. And we mm. say, if you had like millions and millions and millions of pounds or dollars, and you <laughs> wanted to um, change the world in a really positive way with your discipline, what would you do? So we wow. have experiments that couldn't really be done, but yeah. it's like mm-hmm. it helps people to define the, the goal, and that's a creative thing. So. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I completely agree. You know what's interesting? The more senior you get, the more you get to understand is that all of these really successful people do have this very interesting outside-of-work life, and you mm-hmm. don't reckon – I mean, I can think of many successful people in our field who are musicians, for example, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that's unfortunate that you don't have access to when you're early in your career because you assume that all they do is write grants and think about mm-hmm. this topic in their yeah. office. Idiot savants. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are some. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we all are a little bit, right? I yeah. mean, it's our yeah. strength. But, yeah, exactly. But. Exactly. And I think that is another thing that people need to know is that they can embrace their nerdiness if they want to Mm -hmm. you know if they if they're good at storytelling then there's a place for that too Mm -hmm. and if they're you know visual creatives or auditory creatives or whatever I mean there's room for everybody in science you know and I think that's one of the things that upsets people is they sort of develop a a sense of the success in science is a certain type of person like it's some kind of cookie cutter and it's just not Mm -hmm. there's room for all kinds of people and all kinds of strengths and and that's where people I think feel unhappy sometimes is they feel they should be like the cookie cutter model of perfect and mm. nobody's like that you know you have yeah. to define success in your own terms yeah okay so this is related to one of the topics that we had discussed bringing up about trying not to be ageist or sexist or yeah. any other is so what do you have to say about that well, I would say that that is probably the biggest lesson. And the age is sexist part, people can sort of put in their head and go, oh, yeah, I know I'm not supposed to be sexist. <laughs> but actually, you can apply it to, like, are you nerdist? 
Uh, you, are you okay with someone who's really kind of nerdy and doesn't know how to, you know, I don't know, dress very well or even wash very often? I mean, can mm-hmm. you can you accept them? And can you, you know, accept the, you know, sort of girly girl who likes, you know, to have her nails perfect mm-hmm. and yet can still be an amazing scientist? Yes. Or does that woman have to look in a certain way, you know, and not comb her hair very often or something. I mean, you know, like people have really different ways. And if, if, if you come out of high school and people are really, you know, they're, they're they're clique and this is cool and that person's not cool. And then they go to university and they, they sort of shed that a little bit and they become a little bit more open-minded about the type of people that they'll hang out with. But people who are in grad school actually start meeting people that are not the kind of people they would pick to be friends and then mm-hmm. they realize oh this person is the most amazing person mm-hmm. i'm so glad i took the time to get to know this person even though their outer wrappings don't look like me right. mm-hmm. and of course you meet people from different countries and different really different backgrounds and that i think is one of the great things of academia is you meet people from all these different and then you start to realize that if you stop looking at them in a category, you realize they have a lot to offer in terms of, you know, ideas, creativity, skill sets, knowledge, attitude. You know, it's fantastic. So, so you've brought up a lot of uh, comments in your story as well about people saying anti-women types of things to you throughout yeah. your training. So I'm wondering... You know, part of this, I feel like for my career has been that there aren't that many women at the top to model after, right? So this idea of how feminine can I be or am I supposed to be, for example, right? And that must have been so much worse for you. So I'm wondering what you think about when you think of like supporting other women in science based on your own career trajectory. You know, it's, it's, such, a, it's such a changing landscape. I mean, yeah. when I was a student, I just didn't even think about sexism. I mean, it was mm-hmm. around me all the time, I guess, when I think about it. And I guess I was probably brought up in that kind of home, you know, where the, the boys did the snow shoveling and the girls did the dishes. I mean, there yeah. were clear rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, in my my PhD, I mean, I was often the only woman in the room, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I don't remember ever thinking that I couldn't do anything, mm-hmm. that I could do what I wanted. And I was very firm about that. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't about to become a man. You know, I mean, I learned actually. It, it, it helps if you can be a man once in a while, like it meetings and stuff. It there are times when being slightly more masculine is kind of useful, but mostly I was just not prepared to do that. And I really, really wanted to have kids, and I really wanted to have all those things. And I'm a very traditional woman. I like to make apple pie, and I <laughs> so do I. And I well, there you I'm go. The apple you know, pie maker so, in our house, yeah. I, I, you know, I I like I like to. So and I love babies and you know all mm-hmm. that stuff. But on the other hand, I mean that's like why not? Why does that get in the way? And I just never really believed that it would get in the way. And I think when I look at it now, I think oh maybe it did get in the way. And I feel mm-hmm. like oh maybe I should have been a bit more aware. Mm-hmm. And you know for young women now, I think there is a real change. I think the last two years there's been a really big change in mm-hmm. women attitudes about like yeah we can do it our way but I still think we have so far to go in terms of how we define success success is still defined in male terms like it's more salary I don't really care about money actually as long as I have enough you know but that's not a big thing for me no one no one in my career during my career said to me look if you take on this promotion we will give you one day a week off 
Hmm. That would have been helpful. I would have right. taken that promotion. I would yeah. have taken the administrative job or tried to do more if I could have had more time mm -hmm. to be with my kids when they were teenagers, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. You know, to me, that, was, that would have been useful. Or if someone said, okay, we're going to give you a promotion and we're going to give you a um, guaranteed house cleaner for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Right. Yeah. Instead, they say, well, here, have some money and then you go figure it out. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that's just adding to your burden. So I right. think, nah. I don't want the extra job because it's going to be too much time and I want to have time to deal with all the other stuff. So I still think we define success in male terms and, you know, we don't put a premium on the sorts of things that women would often want. Like um, if you said, this job will give you more time to give back to your community. Mm. Like that, that's, that to me is that should be success. Yeah. So success is, you know, have you, have you, are you good to the people around you in your in your immediate life, your family, your friends? Uh, do you give back to your community? Do you have sufficient money to support yourself and your dependents? And um, have you influenced the world in a positive way in your science? Yeah, yeah that, that's a definition of success, but that's not that doesn't come up on, you know, on traditional um, lists. Right. You don't put it on your CV. You don't yeah. put it on your CV, although yeah. people sometimes do, and mm -hmm. they, and we should encourage that more, you know. Yeah. And when we look for people who are we're going to hire, we should be looking for people who show this sort of um, more compassionate attitude about themselves and their communities and right. stuff. So uh, another concrete way of looking at this is saying that success uh, has traditionally been defined, for example, in the United States as like the typical tenure track position, right? Mm -hmm. And in my career, I have found that that is not tenure does not equal happiness. I'm sure everybody has discovered yeah. that. To, um, our, to our dismay. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And that there are many other potential positions where you have more free time to do these other things and that maybe that actually mm -hmm. means a happier life, for example. And in the UK, there's a comparable difference, I'm sure. So, Yeah. I mean, I think there's always this... I mean, everyone's problem is how you define success. You come to, um, in, in some environments, like you come to a, a conference, for example, and mm -hmm. all of a sudden success is defined by how many people are citing you and mm -hmm. whether or not a lot of people attend your talk or whether mm -hmm. there's a buzz about your work. And that's a really great definition of success, and that's not I'm not putting it down. But it's not the only one. And then you go home. And you think, oh, the definition of success is that my garden looks really fantastic, <laughs> and, and my dog is well behaved, yeah. or, you know, and like I'm doing a good job on being a normal person yeah. here, and I'm also doing a good job keeping my salary and working with my colleagues, and yeah. you know, and 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 people forget sometimes that that's a really important thing to value. Or, you know, like, yeah, getting along with your colleagues. That's another thing. It's like in a day-to-day -day basis, that's totally important. Mm -hmm. Being compassionate and understanding of your colleagues and tolerant. That Those are really valuable things. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, people become unhappy when they think they should be achieving things that they can't achieve. Yes. And they have to remember, always go back to first principles. What is it that you really want? Keep your eye on the ball, and then it's better. I mean, in the UK, in, in um, career tracks, it's really difficult because we have such an emphasis on this thing called the research assessment exercise, where you have to produce these high-quality publications. Not many of them, but you have, they have to be very high-quality. And you also have to have grants, and we don't have tenure. And so there's a lot of pressure there um, to keep you know, up appearances, so to speak. 
And, and those the, are continual. Every five years, you're reassessed. Well, they, they kind of, yeah, sometimes it's five years, sometimes it's seven years. And, okay. and I was been going on, I guess, about four or five cycles now, something like okay. that. Um, and we're having one next year. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of talk about this. But now there's also a teaching excellence mm. um, uh, assessment as well. So there's pressure on that. And I always tell my, you know, younger staff members, look, you know, don't listen to that stuff. Don't listen to it. Just listen to what you want to be successful in your life. Mm-hmm. And then probably you'll be fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, but if you start to readjust your career to meet some external definition of what you need to do too much, you compromise your own view of the world. Right. And it's the same in the U.S. where people have this, you know, um, tenure coming up and they have to do, they have to meet all the criteria. And yes, you have to play the game and it's good to know the rules it's good to be aware of them, but they are not the boss of you. <laughs> you are yeah. the boss of you. You choose. You choose what you want to do, and chances are you will be naturally successful on most of the criteria, and there will be a very good argument why you were not successful on one of those criteria, maybe, mm-hmm. because you're excellent at something else. Right. And, you know, it's like it's, it's that sort of creativity idea, again, applied to your career path, so... If you're publishing really well and you're a really good teacher, but you're really not so good at the administrative stuff, maybe it's because you're particularly good at being outward looking rather than inward looking. And mm-hmm. chances are people say, yeah, okay, it's fine. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay, I wanted to pivot to another item on our list. So we're going to talk about the next one is your professors are not your parents. <laughs> yeah, that's a funny one. I mean, I, I always. I have occasionally these students who think I am their parent, and it really drives me nuts. <laughs> because I, you know, I always think about them. Usually, um, they they just think I'm going to be so amazed and impressed by them, uh-huh. mm-hmm. and because their parents are so amazed and impressed, and I love that that their parents are amazing. Right. That's very right. sweet. Right. But I have my own children, and I'm amazed and impressed by them. <laughs> and I, my students have a function, and that is to get stuff done in the lab. Mm-hmm. And I guess that. The point of that comment was that it's it's really important to understand other people's agendas. Um, every professor you a student is ever going to meet or a postdoc, they, th- that person has an agenda, and they have a goal and they have things that they need to get done, and the student or the trainee also has an agenda that they need to get done, mm-hmm. and when those agendas are aligned, the world is great, everybody's happy, and everybody loves everybody, and that's wonderful, but <laughs> when those collide then you have conflict. And mm-hmm. if you ever imagine that your professors are going to do something for your good at the expense of them, you are just asking for disappointment because that's not going to happen. People have their own agendas and they're always going to, uh, uh, you know, always going to follow them. So the trick of the trainee is to figure out how to align their agenda with their professor's agenda and then they will be successful, not, not to go counter to it. Right. And it's a simple rule, but it's sort of a hard rule for some people who they sort of think that we're all there to be loving and sweet. And I always say to my first-year students, I say, you know, you can come to class when you want to, and if you don't, I don't care. Because right. if you think I care, I don't care. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, they, they look at me and they go, Jane, that's terrible. You're so hard. <laughs> yeah. I'm not hard. I don't care. I, I'm delighted when they succeed. That is great. I'm happy for them when they succeed. But I'm not going to go and call them up in the middle of the night and say, you should get to class more often. That's their responsibility. And they need to take that responsibility on their shoulders. And when they do, they become much 
better people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a mistake to think that somebody else is caring at that level. We are not your parents. Your parents care, and that's fine. That's good. Right. But you can't look for your professor to be your parent. But the, of course, the other flip side of it is that people, some people, young people, tend not to talk to their parents about certain things. They have a sort of division, mm-hmm. and the professor, they don't need that division. You know, yeah. they, they can talk to them at, a, at another level, and, and that's it, this is the ageist thing, too. You know, um, if you stop thinking of people as being of one generation or another generation or a certain age or whatever, you just talk to them as individuals in the sphere you are interacting with, then, it's you, yeah, you can get a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point about not not uh, being, a, being their parent or um, jumping in to correct um, behavior yeah. you see as non-optimal right away. Because I've kind of I've I've adopted this philosophy that when I intervene to help you, I may actually be hurting you, because I'm not allowing you to figure out time management and the other stuff that's going to mm-hmm. determine your success for decades to come. Because I want this project to get done yeah. now yeah. or something. You I think know? I think you're absolutely right. And on the professor side, it's it's like this: you have to give that student a chance to fail. Yeah. There should be more room in the system for them to fail. And that's uh, that's getting squeezed all the time. Yeah. Um, and also, I think you know the professor is not the parent, so you shouldn't have the aspirations for uh, the student that are your aspirations, because you know some some professors get disappointed when their students don't want to go on in academia and be just like right. them. Yeah. Right. You know, like right. a student who doesn't want to be just just like you is not a bad student. Right. You know? <laughs> right. They're a student with a bit of, you know, <laughs> independence and that's yeah. a that's a good thing. Yeah. So I think that's that's the other side of it, you know, this student can't be too I don't know. I mean, respectful is one thing, but you know, demanding is another thing. A student shouldn't be too demanding of their professor and the professor should not be too um, overbearing to mm-hmm. the student. Okay, so I don't want to take us off too much on a tangent here, but this brings up so many interesting things. For example, if you're a junior faculty member and you want these projects to work out because you're trying to get tenure, for example, it's hard to let it go, right? If your student is screwing up or if they have a conference presentation and your name is going to be on it, it's hard to not sort of come in and maybe be too overbearing. And so... This is sort of a two-part question. So one, I guess, would be, is there any advice you would have for that junior faculty member? And then also, I suppose, is the advice for students, maybe uh, if you're torn between who to go to graduate school with, maybe it's better for you to go with someone who's more senior? I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that the the young faculty member should do everything that they need to do to get that paper in yeah. the right shape, yeah. and they should be protecting their tenure decision yeah. pretty much at all costs. Okay, it's just like the um, example of the airplane. Mm-hmm. You know, put the oxygen mask on you first, and then on your child. Yeah. And the same thing with the young staff member. You know, safeguard your position in the system first, and then you can safeguard the child. The yeah. undergraduate doesn't have as much to lose if right. the project fails, and so stepping in and saying, "No, no, that's wrong. We do it this way," or "I'm sorry, this project is not for you." because yeah. you're not careful enough or you're not right. taking it seriously, you are now off this project and put someone else yes. on. That's a perfectly reasonable decision. And actually, that's a very good um, lesson for the student. You're doing them a favor, and they're starting to figure out, oh, yeah, the world isn't 
you're not my parent. The world is a little tougher than I thought. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. Um, so that's fine. Um, and from the graduates, you know, which supervisor? I kind of think someone who isn't a brand new professor or lecturer, it's better to work with someone who's a little bit more um, seasoned because they, they will be a little more understanding about um, the ups and downs of a PhD student, and they, they have that distance a little right. bit. Um, you know, young, young people often don't know that what they know. They, so young PhDs, young academics, they don't know how much they know, and they think that everybody knows what they know because they think they're normal. They really, they still, they still is clinging to this belief that they're normal, yeah. you know? Yeah. And they're not normal. And, um, and, then, and then the new PhD student is like, what? And they can be quite intimidating. Uh-huh. On the other hand, of course, they're often working at the cutting edge and that's very exciting. And so right. it's a little bit of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Costs and benefits. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Bigger lab is often better. You have more people that you can work with. Right. You know, more range of post- postdocs that you can sort of um, buddy up with, and that's very useful. Mm-hmm. But, so, but so big, and you never see your your the head yeah. of the lab. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah it depends. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. No, There's no, no sil- silver bullet. Right? No. But. No. Um, okay. The next one on the list was learn more math. Yeah, I mean, I think if I was to reflect on my own career, it would be that I wish I had more math. That that would have been very helpful. And maybe this is going back to a sort of sexist thing again in my life where, you know, everyone said, oh, math is really hard, Jane. You should do oh. math. Math mm-hmm. is for boys. Mm-hmm. Oh. And, um, yeah, so I, I had this at several points in my career. But I do wish that I had more math. And, and the thing with math is it's such a great way to envision what you're doing and to encapsulate a problem. And so getting that sort of conceptual um, idea or uh, framework that mm-hmm. you can get when you understand some maths, very helpful. Um, or sometimes I'll, I'll know exactly what I want to do with the data, but I don't know how to do it. Mm. And then if I had some more maths, I could actually do it. Right. Um, and, and of course, it's a changing target. It changes all the time. And right. learn more maths is actually related to learn more technology. Mm. And the problem there is true for everybody right through their career is that it changes all the time. Right. So, you know, when I was a PhD student, I learned digital electronics. I learned how to use capacitors and transistors and all this stuff. So a completely obsolete knowledge now, of course. Right. Um, you know, then I learned programming. I learned in one language. I learned in another language. And then by the time I was so busy, you know, managing the lab and writing grants and doing administrative stuff. And of course, the computer programs change yet again, right. and the technology changes, and it's, then it's really hard to keep up. So I think it's this learn more math, is try to stay up with the technology and don't be afraid to say, okay, I need to go back to, you know, computer science 101 and learn this now at any stage. Yeah. Yeah. It's really important. That's really interesting. I just thought about this the other day that I, I've also been through like three programming languages mm-hmm. since since 1997, I mm-hmm. guess, which short time I, re- I recognize. But you know what's interesting about that is for the, about the last 20 years, it's mostly been MATLAB. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting. Well, they will change. It's <laughs> interesting how our current trainees have actually had a fairly stable programming environment yeah, compared yeah. to the 20 years before yes, that. Yes, and that's true. That, has, that has changed. Although yeah. I think there's a big shift to 
more Python, Python and yeah. stuff like that. And, and of course, what people are doing with the programming right. is different. Yes. You know? Yeah. And statistics and these kinds of things. And I mean, really, I guess the moral of the story is that your skill set, don't get precious about it. Yeah. Because it's going to be obsolete anyway. Right. And if you keep being flexible, um, you can stay afloat throughout your career. And, you know, getting the job and getting tenure, it doesn't stop there. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even it doesn't even slow down at that yeah. point. You know, you, you got to keep going for a long time, and that requires flexibility. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, so the next one on the list is spend time in another country. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I feel really fortunate that I've had a chance to, you know, live in different countries. And I grew up in Nova Scotia, which is a small place on the edge of the planet and you know um in a very traditional kind of home I guess and and for me to get this opportunity to see other countries was just so fun I mean I started off with my summer in Germany when I was an undergraduate and then I went to the USA and you may think oh well, you know come on how different is that right. um but because I was Canadian, I got to hang out with the Foreign Student Society. So I met all these people from all over the world, uh-huh. which are really, really fun. And that was the next phase where I learned a lot about different people and different cultures. And that, that was a great time. Um, and then, you know, sort of midway through my career, I moved to the UK and, and set up life there and learned how to deal with that and did sabbatical in England first. And then later we moved to the UK and brought our children up there and... and um, then, and we travel all over the, the world right. now, and I've been to all lots of European countries, and also, you know, really, uh, academia, that's, that's the, that is the biggest draw, actually. Forget, yeah. forget the science. Yeah. <laughs> you get <laughs> the to travel. see the whole world. It's yeah. the networking around the world. Yeah. So when you go to a different city, you don't just go and stay in a hotel and do what the tourists do. You actually get to go visit someone's home and sit in their in their yeah. living room and, right. and eat what they eat and, and uh-huh. see the world from their perspective. And that's so cool. Yeah. So, um, but, but I think really it's, again, this idea of, of introducing um, uh, like changing up the rules, you know, like yeah. t- take your rules, take your basic principles and throw them in the air and see how they land. And you go, oh, I could do it this way. Mm. You know, you might not. It might help you define your own culture better, but it gives you a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And of course, science is done differently in different countries. Mm-hmm. You know, even the UK and USA and Canada, they all have different attitudes. Australia, um, as English-speaking countries, but certainly Germany and, and France, I mean, they do have a different emphasis on what they think is important and how they how they push agendas. And that, that's also useful information to take on board and say, hmm, I think I should push this agenda for me a little bit harder, and that would make me more unique in my place and mm-hmm. give me an edge. Yeah, yeah I read a, a book of, that referred to some experiences of Ramon Hall in visiting the UK versus the German system of kind of neuroscience, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. back in the dark mm-hmm. ages of neuroscience mm-hmm. and how struck he was by the, um, the kind of top down nature of the German system relative to the free mm-hmm. and loose kind of systems that were taking place in the UK where mm-hmm. that the idea was, you know, yeah let the, the young people come up with wild ideas and chase them and see yeah. what happens versus the kind of person who knows telling you what to do. Yeah. It's interesting and to, that still to see exists. those styles. Yes, exactly. still exists today. You know, yeah. there's quite a difference from the German system to the UK system. Yeah. Um, and that we, we tend not to have this sort of top dog. Right. Um, 
But I, I find it even in the U.S., there's certain, you know, attitudes that people have here that they think this is the way, this is what really matters, you know, mm-hmm. and they, like, a, a good example is in the U.K., there's a big emphasis on how does your research impact uh, wealth creation, uh, you know, industry, yes. society, the healthcare system. So, and they really want people to sh- demonstrate how their work right. is impacting. It's not enough to go give a public engagement talk. Right. You know, you have to actually get you know in with the policymakers and change the way the policies are made. Talk mm-hmm. to the government officials, and and then that takes quite a long time to right. do. That it takes a lot of work and and energy. Whereas in the U.S. and I think a lot of other countries, they just don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. So when people apply for jobs in the UK, we look at, can they take their work outside of the lab in mm-hmm. an effective way? And if they have no interest in it, sometimes we're not interested in them, mm. you know, because they we feel like they're too insular. And right. uh, science is too inward looking, too much navel gazing, <laughs> as they say. Yeah. <laughs> it's just basic science now. Yeah. We're not trying to, yeah. we got to yeah. figure it out before we help yeah. people. Yeah, it is, a, it, it's a, it's a different set of priorities. And I think, you know, for me in my career, I've done a lot of work with industry. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I've periodically on and off, I've worked on court cases and uh-huh. um, consumer packaging. And I work do a lot of work now with the um, central banks on counterfeit detection. Hmm. And, you know, it's really interesting. I love getting outside of academia and looking at corporations and governments and how people work right. in those groups. And again, it's like you can bring them information. It's so fun to teach people in those fields um, about neuroscience and the brain and cognition and psychology. So that's really fun. But also you get to look at new problems. You say, well, we don't know anything about this. Uh You know, we don't understand how, you know, this problem relates to this problem. And yet in industry, they're saying, how does this problem relate to this problem? Mm -hmm. And then you're going, we don't have an answer because nobody's done it. Right. And then you say, ah, this is a new research direction. And away you go. Uh And you break new ground. So, you know, getting outside of the box is really a good idea. Right. Will you tell us a little bit more about the counterfeit detection? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's really fun. I've been working with the um, banknote groups for probably 10 years now, and it started off working with the Bank of Canada and the Bank of England, um, and they wanted to know how people, um, how do you judge counterfeit banknote? And, uh-huh. you know, you deal, you have a banknote in your hand for maybe a second, two seconds, um, and how do you look at it? And, of course, there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of technology in a banknote that you might right. not notice, but um, U.S. banknotes are actually kind of low in technology, although right. that's probably changing but nevertheless there's quite a lot of work that goes into creating a banknote to make it safe and um, a lot of it has to do with the print quality of this special intaglio ink they use which right. produces very high resolution high contrast information plus there's other security features that change color and do all this stuff right. and those things all cost money um, so the, the people who make the money who you know print the money want to know what's value for money and do people actually look at this stuff Right. And um, and so we help them figure out where people look on a banknote, um, how they judge. It's also touch, mm-hmm. um, and and how quickly they can detect that it's not quite right. And of course, mm-hmm. counterfeiters are always trying to know this too, and they want to get one step ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. Um, Have you thought about selling your your skills to the other side? Uh, yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> of course you would see. That. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, I could, I could, Truly write, dark I could money. write a book on you know how to, how to do this effectively, but I'll, I think I'll resist that <laughs> yeah. in a moment. Yeah, yeah talk about um, meeting your life goals. Right? <laughs> 
<laughs> but it, it, but it's really interesting because it's really a real world issue and it's the opposite to like you know in psychology they do a lot of work on visual search so mm-hmm. what's the target and you're looking for a red square and a, you know you know a, a sea of, of other objects mm-hmm. whereas that counterfeit is says you don't know what makes it different and right. it all looks it looks really a lot alike yeah <laughs> and yet it isn't alike and so understanding what that is and how people do that's kind of interesting yeah that is a cool application yeah yeah yeah, yeah it's very cool Okay, so I have one more uh, excellent point that you sent me earlier, but before I ask that to sort of finish up, I wanted to ask you another question that I've been thinking about. A lot of the things that you're saying make it very clear that you're a very thoughtful, warm person in the field. And I think that it's difficult to balance that with making it clear that you have expectations. So in one of my first faculty positions, It was at a small liberal arts college and everything was casual. Everything was on a first name basis and I was very young. So I think I was 27 Mm -hmm. and I had a hard time getting my students to see me as a authority figure. Mm -hmm. And I sought out some advice from other faculty members. And one of them, I remember gave me a really great line where he said, I tell my students on the first day, don't misinterpret the fact that I'm casual as someone who lacks expectations. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering uh, what if you have had to make this explicit with your graduate students, if they're all of a sudden surprised if you come down on them. Do you yeah. know what I mean? I do know this problem. And I, I, I think actually the older I've become, the more I make people earn that warmth Mm -hmm. so you know I mean naturally I yeah I I, you know I am warm I guess and I I, you know I don't mean to ever be cold to people and I know that that can feel kind of uncomfortable but at the same time um, I don't think you're doing people any favors when you friend them you befriend them when they haven't deserved that friendship so I am actually quite cold and business-like with my students for the first year Mm -hmm. and I tell them that you know, I say, you know, it, it's all about earning respect. And the way you do that from, for me is come to the meetings on time. You're prepared. Um, you, you're, you present your stuff nicely in a PowerPoint. When I say, tell me, tell me what your project is. I want to hear the reason you're doing your project. I want to see the background lit. In a nutshell, in a three minute, I want three minutes of what the background lit is. I want a picture of your stimuli and your procedures, and I want your data analyzed and as presented as nicely as you can. Mm-hmm. And when there's parts where you're unclear, you say, I'm, I don't know how to deal with this part, or I don't know how to deal with that part. And you know, then I say to them, look, it's, you don't need to be perfect. I'm not expecting you to be perfect. I'm just expecting you to do things in as professional a way as you can possibly do it. Mm-hmm. And then when they do that, and we have some success after the first year, and I feel like, okay, this person is taking it seriously, and I'm impressed with their thoughts and stuff, then I'll relax a little bit. And then we might go for a beer and have a chat. But I'm actually, I find it's easier to keep a distance and then close the distance uh-huh. than if the distance is short yes. and then you go separate it and that's hard on everybody you know both the student and you and you give a false sense of security and mm-hmm. so in general that seems to work better for me I find you know it, it, it's, there's a difference between kindness and and friendliness you yeah. know like mm-hmm. you can be I can be kind to people I don't even like I'm, I'm quite right. I've also learned how to do that like you know colleagues or students that I actually don't like their personality like they're just not like me and their value systems don't jive with mine and mm-hmm. but that's fine I don't they don't need to be like me I, I just judge their work 
And if their work is good, then that's fine. Mm-hmm. That's good. Oh, that's such good advice. You know, mm-hmm. because you have to you have to think of the sphere that you interact with a person. You know, like mm-hmm. it, it, you have to define what what is it what is that sphere, and then you you accept that. Mm-hmm. You know, but you don't have to make value judgments about the way they dress, what they do with their weekends, or how they vote, or anything like that. You have to keep that separate, and you just look at the way they the way they do their job. Right. Oh, this is excellent life advice, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's easy to demand compliance with all my values. Right, <laughs> You know, right. it just yeah. feels yeah. almost yeah. humanly automatic yeah. To, uh, yeah. to want everyone to be exactly yeah. like us <laughs> in yeah. every way. It's weird, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's really easy to, to generate sort of disapproval in, inadvertently, you know, because maybe you smoke and they don't, or you, you don't and they do, or, yeah. you know, these things, and we... You, I don't know, maybe we live in a generation of likes and dislikes, and I think this is, mm-hmm. you know, we, you don't have to like everything. Right. It's okay to not like some part of it. Right. right. But the distance thing and the, the respect thing is, is, is hard to, to manage, you know, and sometimes I have students who are too respectful, and they're terribly intimidated, and, <clears throat> you know, they really are really scared of me, and I, and I, I think, oh, I don't want them to be that scared of me. I don't, I don't mean to be scary, mm-hmm. you know. And, and so I have to work kind of hard at dispelling that in some of them, you right, know. Right. But like I said, every student's a little bit different. And there's male-female differences, and, you know, it's always complicated. Yeah. Okay, I don't want to keep you from the beach too long here. but <laughs> So I'm going to just ask you this one closing question. I feel like we have discussed it a little bit. You've been so thoughtful, and this has been such a fun conversation. The last one on this list was, it's an advantage if you don't know what you want to be when you grow up. Mm. I really think that's true. Um, I, 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 you know, I often have students who know exactly what they want to do, and I feel like they've put on blinders, mm-hmm. and they have some somebody else is telling them what they want to do, and I don't mm-hmm. think they actually know. Mm-hmm. And especially when they're under twenty-five, how can how can you know? You shouldn't know because the world is full of opportunities, and you know. So I guess I put a high premium on being open to possibilities and. You know, acquiring skill sets for a wide range of possibilities is a really good thing, right? So this is the poetry writing, the right. skill acquisition, maths, you know, um, social skills. All these things are really important because you never know when an opportunity is going to come along. And then you can say, oh, I'm going to jump on that, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think that's really useful. And I, I still feel that way. And I don't think anybody ever changes, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, people at my age, we're talking about retirement and stuff, but nobody's talking about dying. So I think, <laughs> they, you know, like, like my mother's 90 something, so I've got another 30 years and some. So I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to do when I grow up? Mm-hmm. Right. You know? yeah. And so, you yeah. know, I've been developing my painting and my this and my that, and I'll write a couple books maybe, or, you know, you have ideas. Yeah. But people should at all stages, even in the, even after tenure, they could say, well, you know, I think I'm going to become a university administrator or, you know, I think I'm going to become, a, you know, do a lot of applied work or yeah. I think I'm going to become the director of, you know, I'm going to change the way the students work or, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like there's lots of opportunities in there. And if you have it in your head that I'm going to be a super famous Nobel laureate. I mean, you know, it's a rather narrow path. <laughs> <laughs> Very bad odds. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I really like it when students don't know exactly what they want to do in yeah. research because actually, in my view, everything is interesting if you have the right teacher. Mm-hmm. So the most important thing for a student looking for a PhD is to find the right teacher, get the right PhD mentor, good lab, and then everything flows from that, more mm-hmm. or less, you know. Mm-hmm. 
And even if you pick the wrong lab and you're in a, in a you know, the, the, the people are really good, but the research question isn't really that hot, mm. it doesn't matter. Mm. It really doesn't matter. You can still springboard from there to do a postdoc in another lab, do different things, and you should change it up. I mean, that's, an, that's another kind of thing we always laugh about. Um, people have one research thing. So yeah. they'd say, okay, well, you know, if someone comes, comes for a job talk and they give a talk and you hear their colloquium and you go, okay, so what else do you do? Like, what's your other line of research? Right. And everybody should have two lines of research. Yeah. Right. Not always going at the same time, but maybe jumping, but you should have more than one line of research because you never know when that's going to go out of fashion. Right. Mm-hmm. And you need to be flexible. Yeah. So that's part of this whole sort of general view of being open-minded, being flexible, um, makes you more adaptable to whatever life throws at you. Thank you so much, Jane. Oh, thanks, this was Jane. This really was awesome. Fun. Thank you.